Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, June 17th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we check in on mental health care in the state. Then, summer vacation is in full swing. How can kids avoid losing the academic progress they've made this year? We'll talk about that. And the ways you can spend Juneteenth in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. It's been almost a year since a federal judge installed a monitor to keep an eye on Mississippi's embattled Department of Mental Health. That measure was the result of a DOJ lawsuit that accused Mississippi of providing such poor resources for mental, mentally ill residents that it discriminated against them. We wanted to know in the time since that monitor was put in place, has mental health access improved? Joy Hogue. Executive Director of the Jackson-based nonprofit Families as as Allies, tells us, from her perspective, the answer is complicated. Dr. Hogan, the court-appointed monitor, and his team released their first report two or three months ago, and they saw some progress, but they also saw some areas of significant concern. And he talked about things like people... um, waiting in jail. And this isn't, these aren't people who have criminal charges against them. And that's a whole other issue when somebody has criminal charges, but they also have a mental illness. These are people with no criminal charges who are awaiting acute treatment and they're being held in jail. And also he found this trend that there was a significant number of people who were admitted to the state hospitals who were not diagnosed with a serious mental illness. They were diagnosed with something else, but not a serious mental illness, which really begs the question of looking at our system, you know, where should those people have been so that they could get the kind of help and support they need? And what does that mean about people with serious mental illness? That Because you're always going to need some sort of acute treatment. Nobody's saying that that will go away, acute inpatient treatment, but we should just rely on it less and have more of an array of services. But because of that, is that why some people are not able to get that acute treatment? So there's definitely some things to look at. Being that you said there are folks who are in jail but haven't committed a crime, they're there because there's nowhere else to put them, where would you like to see those people placed? I would like to see that, first of all, our system, like backing up from that, 
really had the array of services that it, and supports that it's supposed to be working toward so that people were much less likely to end up in that situation because by the time they get to that situation, it's a crisis and everybody's just scrambling to get them somewhere and they end up in places that are not appropriate and can violate their civil rights. So I think that's one thing to back up and look at what needs to happen and is our state looking at those people who end up in that situation and backing up and saying what happened and talking to them and their families and saying what did you need six months ago, you know, so that you wouldn't have gotten, this wouldn't have gotten to this point. And then I would like to see them be the ones who are getting those either crisis beds or if they need acute care in the state hospital, that they would be able to get that. But I don't. I think it's really easy to have a knee-jerk reaction and say, oh, we need more acute care beds. But I don't know if that's the case or if it's the wrong people are ending up in those beds for other reasons because that's what the reports seem to indicate. So the right people aren't having access to what they need. What would be an example of some things that could be done ahead of time so that that person doesn't end up in crisis? Well, I think some of it, and this is in the remedial order, is for those people with significant, serious and persistent mental illness who are leaving the state hospital, is discharge planning really happening like it's supposed to? And there were indications in the report that that's getting better. But are those... um, mental health centers getting the support and technical assistance they need, because that's a very challenging situation to make sure that when someone is coming back to their area that they are coordinating with the state hospitals from the very beginning so that those people are coming back to an array of services and supports that works for them. Um, I think it would be really helpful the access to peer support, which there has been an increase in that, so that they can talk to someone who's been through the same thing and learn, you know, some of the things they did and have that support. But I think that coordination is really, really key. And then to remember that this lawsuit isn't about, and the ADA and Olmstead are not about just throwing services at people. They're about looking at each individual person, working with them and saying, for you and for your family, what if they want their family involved, what works for you? What would help you live and work in the community in the way you want? So having that really individualized, and that's why things like employment, supported employment and supported housing are really important because this is about people having the same chance to be in the community with the right kind of support as anyone else has. What about access to medications that they need? Is that an that's, issue? Yes, and that's um, that's part of the remedial order, too, and there is money in there for that because apparently, and I am not an expert on this, but during the trial, it sounded like um, that people were going for periods of time, people who needed medication were going for significant periods after they got discharged without being able to get it, or maybe they were just given a card that said you have an appointment at a mental health center with no support to actually get to that appointment, or better yet, have someone come to them. Um, things like PAC teams where the services and supports can come to them if they're on medication, that someone can come to them and help make sure that they get it 
and that they're supported in taking it. So, yeah, that's very important, too. That's not to say every single person needs to be on medication, but that is a significant issue with um, serious mental illness that a lot of people could benefit from that support. The Department of Mental Health has said it's come up with crisis teams to deal with people who are in crisis in the counties and that they put more uh, services in place. But you're saying that you don't know that the services that are in place are really meeting the needs. Is that correct? Well, I don't think we know yet. And just... um we need more information and more data, and that first monitoring report would indicate that we haven't met those goals yet, that there's been progress, but not necessarily that they've been met. So one thing I'm looking forward to is, first of all, the continued monitoring reports, and I think the next one is supposed to come out in early fall and is going to focus on crisis services, and that's so important. You're right. That's a huge part of this. And also, the Department of Mental Health is required Um, to establish a website that has data about what's actually happening to people out there by mental health region. Like, are they getting the crisis services? Are they getting this? And what does the data tell us? And as far as I know, not a lot of that data is out there yet. So I think that website will be really helpful. Joy Hogue, Families as Allies, thank you so much for your time and speaking with us about this issue. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Coming up, summer vacation is in full swing. How can Mississippi kids avoid losing the academic progress they've made this year? We'll talk about that. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Summer is here. That may not be a good thing for the growing brains of Mississippi youngsters. Studies show the average elementary and middle school student can lose up to a fifth of a school year in learning progress over the course of a summer break. Felicia Davis is part of the education team here at MPB. She tells us she doesn't like the term learning loss. We like to say unfinished learning or not yet. And so because the loss implies that they lost something, there was a setback definitely. And it definitely has impacted children and schools and families. However, a lot of schools are implementing programs that are trying to catch those students where they are and to help them to get where they should be. It definitely had a negative impact, not just in our state, but nationally. And so we're looking at the data. Uh, The Department of Education is using the data as well to determine which strategies will work best and which programs help to further get that child to the yet instead of the not yet. When children come back after the summer, what things are noticeable? I, myself, am an educator, but I have been out of the classroom for a few years. And one of the things is I know a lot of math teachers uh, have a lot of catching up to do because children tend to forget because math is something you lose if you don't use. And so I think that programs that are being implemented in the schools to try to focus on those, those concerns are definitely helping, but 
COVID definitely gave us a setback, but we're starting to see gains and improvements based upon um, these hybrid classes and opportunities that existed, exist now, but didn't exist before COVID. Are there options for, say, a single parent who's working two jobs? How do they make sure their child stays relatively up with what they've learned over the course of the summer? Well, one of the great um, things about education is we are tapping in more so to those type of families that you just mentioned, like a single mother. And so a lot of the teachers utilize some type of electronic communication, and we have a lot of programs that are virtual. I want to recommend MPB's Classroom TV because you can search it by content. So if you have two or three children home, you can definitely find a teacher on there who is teaching that particular concept. And there's so many things available now because we saw that there was a huge gap and we made more material available to parents nationwide as well as state-focused. And so as a mother who has to work, as many do, and especially with the, with the rising cost of everything right now, we don't want to give children too much screen time, but there is definitely a lot of programs. There are definitely a lot of programs out there that can assist, and it's only at a push of a button. And talking about MPB, you have an event coming up. We do. We have a huge event, and we're super excited about this event because it has not been in person since 2019. And we have a lot of fantastic vendors who will be joining us. And this is an opportunity for the community to come out, families to come out and bring their uh, children out. And there will be a lot of educational focus and little activities they can do at each of the vendor's stations, as well as free books and free kid-friendly items that will be given out. And I encourage you to come join us. What's it called? Summer Learning Family Fun Day. So we're making learning fun. Something where, hey, yes, it's summertime, but we're still promoting literacy, and it's an opportunity for the family to have fun together. Where is it at? At the Jackson Convention Complex. And what times? From 9 to 1. Ultimately, what do you want families to get out of this? I want children and families to know that learning can be fun. Uh, sometimes when you say learning, the kid shuts down, but it's summertime. I don't want to do work or, you know, we want to promote learning together and learning can be fun. And so the concept of literacy is our main focus, though. So let's come out here, have a good time, but we leave some things we can utilize, not just for that day. We can take those things home, the workbooklets, the books and continue our learning at home. Thank you so much for telling us about this program, and thank you for the insight into Not Yet. Not Yet. Not Yet. I thank you for having me. Coming up, how best to spend Juneteenth in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. This Sunday marks the annual Juneteenth holiday. 
a day for celebration and education in the U.S. Pam Jr. is director of the two Mississippi museums, those being the Museum of Mississippi History and the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum, both in Jackson. She speaks with Mississippi Edition producer, a lot of Mississippis in there, Rob Lane. If you go back to to Abraham Lincoln in September 1862 and the Emancipation Proclamation was issued to go in effect January 1st of 1863, but you had these rebellious states that had seceded from the Union and, and Mississippi was included. So you had people still with enslaved folks on the plantations. And up until 1865, this is still happening. This particular day, Gen- Major General Gordon Granger came to Galveston, Texas with 2,000 soldiers and went into this. I-, I always try to make up the scenario myself, but went into this plantation and, and, and stood in front of the big house and said and told them, all Texas, all Texans, we proclaim that all Texans are free. And that included those 250,000 enslaved Africans. So for me, that's an amazing story because here they are continuously working, 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 picking cotton, whatever the crop was there, and they had no idea. And if I even digress a little bit, we think about the 8th of May, 1865, and that was in Columbus, Mississippi. So the Union soldiers crossed over from Alabama and came into Columbus to tell the enslaved people that you're free. That's two years after the fact. That's, that's, you know, sometimes it's hard for me to compute that. But this is what happened. And on June 19th, it was Jubilee Day. It was Freedom Day for 250,000 enslaved people in the state of Texas. Can you provide any insight into why now we celebrate Juneteenth on June 19th across the country and not, on May 8th or any of the other days when enslaved peoples in various parts of the country found out they were legally free? Well, I think that that last day, that June 19th, Juneteenth, that was the end of slavery. That was the last 250,000 people who were enslaved. And that was jubilation because now all of us are free. All of us. Two years later, and if you look at it today, 157 years later, now in 2021, which is 156 years, this has been made a federal holiday. It's, it's, it's a day that we all should be so proud of to have that, that we had a, a federal official to put something like this in place. The federalizing of the holiday, making it a day off for people, is complicated, right? Because on the one hand, it brings much greater attention nationwide to the holiday. It also potentially trivializes it. It may chip away at some of the sort of original emotion and meaning of the holiday, at least in some circles, you know, from some points of view. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how we should sort of navigate thinking about Juneteenth now at this point where it's at sort of sort of a complicated point, a transition point in its history. Well, there's the 4th of July, and that's Independence Day. And now we have June 19th. I don't, I don't think that, that people should, 
should think about chipping away at it because this is an important day that if you don't know about your culture, this is a time to learn about it. This is a time for curious people who've never been interested in history to sit down with folks of African-American descent and learn about them. You know, one thing that I, I've heard a lot of people say, even in these museums, is that when they walk up to me and say, I don't see color. If anything, this is today that we all see each other's color and learn about the culture. This is a very important day to many people all over the world that will be celebrating Juneteenth, that we can sit back and recognize not only what happened in the past, but what happens today and how do we move forward. So tell me more. How would you recommend Mississippians celebrate Juneteenth? Well, we, what we do is, it's not only a celebration, but a time for education. So I'm, I'm hoping people will come to the two Mississippi museums because it's free. Learn about the civil rights movement. Learn about every facet from from the information about slavery to learning about Reconstruction, because what that's going to do is give you hope. Learning about Reconstruction, seeing seeing Gallery 2 that talks about all these people who were lynched, who never saw freedom, but but they died for someone like me to be in a position that I am, to go into Gallery 3 and see all the faces looking at you. It's a moment to be educated by Mega Wiley Evers, who gave his life at 37 years old for, for people to be free. We're still fighting for freedom. It's still there in the 21st century. But what these, what the holiday should do, what these museums should do, is to show ways that we move forward. That's important. That's very important to me. And if I'm not mistaken, the two museums are free not only on Sunday, Juneteenth itself. I know the museum is always free on Sunday, but today and Saturday as well. Yes, we are free. We are sponsored by Ingle Shipbuilding. And what we're going to do are theme tours. We're going to have people come in so that we can talk to them about Juneteenth because these two museums are, are the largest classrooms, as, gov as our former governor, who's passed on, William Winter, would say. So this is a time for people to be educated. It's a time to be curious, to ask questions. That's what we're here for. And, and later on during that day, I will be reading the book, All Different Now, Juneteenth, The First Day of Freedom. And that is for young, young babies to come in that I can teach them about the holiday and how we celebrate, how we remember those people of greatness and resilience. Now, of course, Mississippi is a big state, and if you live in Natchez or South Haven or Pascagoula and you can't make it to the two museums this weekend... What are some other ideas for uh, how to how to spend a, an educational and a thoughtful but also a celebratory Juneteenth? Well, you know, one thing that, that, that these small towns can do is to go sit on Grandmama Nim's porch. Talk to grandmother. Talk to grandfather. Find out who grandmother's mother is, who grandmother's father is. A lot of children don't know who their great-great-grandparents are. That's important because they are the holders of the, of, the, of the information. They are the keepers of their family's history. What better day to do this than these children who have these cell phones to push that recorder and listen to grandmother and auntie talk about the olden days. 
Pam Jr. is director of the two Mississippi museums. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's the Gestalt Gardener. Then at 10, it's Next Stop Mississippi. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us Monday morning. We'll be here at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition. Have a great weekend.